In America, it's becoming quite clear as Christians, we are in a post-Christian culture here in the United States. Hi, I'm Matt Burford from Tactical Faith. I got a great opportunity to sit down with Rod Dreyer and talk about his new book, Live Not By Lies, which is a manual, he calls it, for Christian dissidents. That, along with a book he wrote called The Benedict Option, which was to give an appeal to churches to think and reflect now before it's too late on how we're going to live and promote and be ambassadors to a culture that's no longer Christian. Thanks for spending a few minutes supporting and listening Tactical Faith Radio. This is, this is, this is a Let's be honest, talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world, but now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. This book seems to be an extension of your other works. You're building uh, quite the what I call the uh, the the Dreyer Literary Universe, <laughs> with the Benedict <laughs> Option, CrunchyCon, and in some ways how Dante saved your life, all being written with the same internal impulse in mind. Do you see it this way? You know, I hadn't thought of it quite that way. I've thought about Live Not by Lies being uh, amounting to a sequel to the Benedict Option because I'm trying <laughs> to fi- figure out not only for myself, but for the church, how we live in these post-Christian, increasingly anti-Christian times. But um, I guess Crunchy Cons, that was my first book back in 2006. You know, I, I was was and I am a conservative politically and a Christian, but the as you know, if you read the book, the fact of my Christianity, my conservatism, it didn't land me in the conventional Republican Party box. And um, I guess, you know, and, and the Dante book, man, that, that, you know, believe it or not, that's my favorite book of all the ones I've written because it was so unusual that, that I, I'm a guy who reads constantly, but what I read is nonfiction. But I, in, the, in the middle of the worst spiritual crisis of my life, God led me into reading Dante. And by the way, it happened because my kids go to a classical Christian school and uh, I, I ha- would I thought when I saw Dante, the book on the shelf, when I was so physically ill and spiritually in a crisis, I thought, gosh, you know, I I wish I'd read that back in college or high school, but I never, the Divine Comedy, but I never did. It's too late for me, but I pulled it off the shelf anyway and read it, and God used it to really rebuild me, lead me on a journey of repentance and reconciliation with my father before he died. And, um, I guess that the, the the one thing that links all of these, uh, Matt, is that I'm on a quest. I've always seen my life, my Christian life, uh, which is no different from my life itself, as being part of a quest to find harmony, to find peace with God, and to find a meaningful way to live and to create a home in this earth, even though we know that we are pilgrims on this earth. You know, I want to try to make it a place where it is easier to see God and to hear the Lord's voice and to form communities of people who are dedicated to the search for God. I mean, that was what the Benedictine monks at the very beginning, they started out. Their their whole reason for being, living in community, is the search for God. And uh, I'm not a Catholic, I'm not a Benedictine, but I share that that mission. 
the, in the Benedict option and in this book, um, this new book that you have, um, a part, they're part of a larger conversation that Christian academia have been having for, for quite a long while now. The in but not of mode of existence for Christians is, I think, worthy to think about and reflecting on in our communities with each other. Uh, I remember the first time I read Jave Davis and Hunter's book, which you re- you actually referred to that book in your new book to change his book to change the world, mm-hmm. and he he seemed to pick up the ball from Charles Taylor or Francis Schaeffer, and trying to call the attention to the fact that Christians have lost our sway in culture. Right. Even the, the apologetic world that I'm in is grappling with the fact that our classical arguments don't seem to persuade like they used to. Do you think the American cultural elites and the dominating zeitgeist is that so far gone now for us to have any meaningful conversations that persuade? Yeah, absolutely. It it is. And this is one of the things so difficult for a lot of Christians, especially of my age. I'm 53, my age and older. Um, We just can't seem to accept because we want to fight the last battle. It's sort of like Christianity. Our Christianity is a Maginot line. That uh, you know, we want to defend against the attacks that are coming. That 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 we that we can understand when, in fact, the attacks are going around through Belgium. So to, to <laughs> speak, to use a metaphor, but um, I I think that reason is just done for, and it's not a it's that's not a rationale for getting rid of reason. I mean, you know, Mike, we were talking earlier before we started recording. Both of our kids go to classical schools, and they're being taught logic and reason, and they should be, but. The world that we're in now is so chaotic that uh, people are not going to be convinced by uh, an argument, you know, a sound argument. The argument still needs to be presented to them because there may be people uh, to whom that reaches. But most people, I find, simply don't have the capacity to process an argument. I mean, I, it's something as simple as I was arguing with some relative of mine about politics, and I told her, I said, you know, uh, I said, you know, syllogism, 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 <laughs> um, you know, uh, uh, premise, 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 conclusion. And, and it didn't make any sense. She said, well, that's your opinion. I'm like, no, no, no. It's, it, <laughs> it's, But that's how she was. And this wasn't even about religious stuff. I, I think that the the way, the only argument that we Christians can make, and it's not even an argument, it's, it's opening the door for argument, is through art and um and goodness. I mean, let me, let me explain to you what I mean. Pope Benedict said one time, Benedict XVI said that uh, the best arguments the Church can make is the the beauty that comes out of its tradition and its life and the saints it produces. In other words, he was saying that beauty and goodness made incarnate open the door for truth. And I think that is really the case. I, I have my I can look at my own life and realize the things that led me to Christ as an adult, a young adult who had decided Christianity was was false and I didn't want to have anything to do with it. The things that turned me around were first of all, when I was 17 years old, going to the cathedral at Chartres in France, that's the great Gothic cathedral. My mom had won a trip to Europe on a an and she didn't want to go, but she knew I was 17 years old, and I had I loved Ernest Hemingway and French Impressionist painting and wanted to get to Paris, so she sent me. I was the only teenager on a bus full of elderly American tourists. And as the bus was—we went from London to Paris, but the tour bus stopped— at, a, um, at an old church about an hour outside of Paris, and I didn't want to go see an old church. I just wanted to go to the streets of Paris and see where Hemingway was. 
But I walked in the thing because I didn't want to sit on the bus for an hour. And that I was my life changed. I had nothing in, growing up in the deep south in the late 20th century had prepared me for the glory of God made manifest in the stones and the stained glass and just the 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 the, the architecture of the Chartres Cathedral, which was built in the 12th century. Now I didn't walk out of there as a Christian, but I walked out of there on a path, hmm. on a, a long and winding path. And the the next thing that happened to me six years later was I met an old man. I was a journalist in Baton Rouge, uh, my first job out of uh, out of LSU. And uh, I was sent to interview this old Catholic priest. He was in his 90s who had made uh, a career for himself as an artist back in the 1930s. And it was he who introduced a couple of really well-known Mexican muralists, Diego Rivera and uh, Orozco, to America. But he gave it all up to become a Catholic priest. And there he was living in, in a retirement home in Baton Rouge. And that, the paper sent me there to interview him for his artwork. So I go in there, and Monsignor Sanchez was his name, this little old man. He's like Yoda. You know, he was short. He was so gentle. I mean, he was luminous. And I sat down to hear his life story. I'm not going to repeat it right here, but Matt, he talked about how he had been raised in a wealthy coffee planter's family in Guatemala, been sent to Yale in like 1917 uh, for his education, and he lost his faith. And... Um, but he eventually, he went back to Guatemala when he was like 40 for his father's, his father had died. And he went to receive communion in the church, and uh, he didn't even believe that any of it was real. But he said that when the priest held the, the host out to him, dazzling light came out of the communion wafer, and he heard an audible voice say, I have always loved you. The, and the old man was telling me this story. You know, I'm like, what, 20, 23 years old? He's telling me this story with tears running down his face, sitting in a little retirement home in Baton Rouge. And uh, he talked about how this miracle happened a second time, and he ended up becoming a priest. Uh, he wanted to serve as a missionary among the Indians in Guatemala, but um, there was a communist uh, rebellion going on, and they put his name on a hit list. So his bishop sent him to Baton Rouge. He lived out the rest of his priesthood in obscurity in Baton Rouge. But that old man, when I left him that day, I knew I had seen a witness. I knew that this man, this intelligent, gifted artist, because some of his art was there, he had seen the Lord and heard the voice of the Lord and changed his life. And I realized that I can believe him. I can trust uh -huh. him. So I ended up committing my life to Christ. And, uh, and I hadn't really thought about it this way until many, many years later, after I'd become a writer and was trying to think, why did I become a Christian? What what were the, the the steps on the way? The main ones were being struck by the awesomeness uh, of God in that cathedral. Because I, I remember thinking, standing there thinking, I want to know the God to whose glory these people whose names we don't even know in the Middle Ages built this cathedral to his worship. And uh, and Father Sanchez, who changed his life because of this um, miraculous encounter with the Lord. And uh, so it was then beauty and goodness that opened the door to the gospel truth for me. I think that, I mean, that was my particular story, but I think that is the way, the, the, the most, the surest way that we can open the minds and the hearts of people in this irrational age to Christ.
You know, we put on a bunch of events here in Alabama. One of the events that we had was uh, we had Gary Habermas come down and do a uh, project with a Shroud of Turin replica. And uh, so we do all these events that are kind of rational based, apologetics, usual kind of thing with PowerPoint, whatever. But this one had a prop that looked like the Shroud of Turin. It was as long. They had the long, wide look and they also had the, uh, the X-ray look. Uh, we had an older woman come up, uh, and this was in Montgomery, Alabama. It was ha- it was at a First Baptist Church, in Montgomery. It was half Catholic, half Baptist in the same Baptist church. It was the strangest. Wow. It, it was awesome, uh, but after it's over, an older woman came. Um, she had to have been in her eighties. She looked at the shroud, and she had a tear in her eye. And I'm I'm not over dramatizing this at all. She looked at it, and she goes, "That's the face of my Jesus." And if, and if he's, and she said, he's real. I know he's real. I know he's, that's his face. So you back and forth about, you know, whether or not the Shroud of Turin is real. That For me, that's not the issue. The issue is she knew this was real in the way that it was rooted in history. It was really true, but she had a personal experience, a real personal experience with Christ. And for me, that's that's the kind of thing I think that you're appealing to. But let's okay. get to your book, and we could go forever on that topic. But this Live Not By Lies is basically, uh, you call it a manual for Christian dissidents. Um, and I found in the first part of the intro where you said, this is what the survivors of communism are saying to us. Because you go around and you, you do a lot of interviews for those who mm-hmm. survived communism. You said liberalism's and admirable care for the weak and marginalized is fast turning into a monstrous ideology that if not stopped will transform liberal democracy into a softer therapeutic form of totalitarianism. And in fact, in fact, you call it a softer totalitarianism all throughout the book. Um, Can you go a little bit more into what that means? What is a soft form Mm -hmm. of totalitarianism? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, I think that we, we could probably start by defining what is totalitarianism. The The term itself was invented by Benito Mussolini, the fascist dictator of Italy, and uh, he described it as a, a system in which nothing exists outside the state. You know, everything in life is politicized. And uh, I think that's probably the best way to think about it, a, a, a society in which everything is political. Um, our idea of totalitarianism is, comes from the 20th century and from the Cold War, from the Soviet Union or maybe Nazi Germany, where you could not escape um, the, the power of the, the ruling ideology. Um, and in the Soviet Union, it was gulags, it was the KGB, it was a police state and so on. I don't think that's what's coming here. And I think to the extent that uh, Americans... When we think of totalitarianism and we have that Cold War model, we're going to miss some really important things that are happening here. And I think this is what the people who escaped Soviet uh, communism are trying to tell us. What we have here in, in our country is a rising ideology that seeks to politicize all aspects of life. It calls itself social justice. Some people call it wokeness. But um, it is uh, it, it tries to make certain groups in our society, uh, racial, gender, and so forth, it, it, it tries to speak up for them and, and as oppressed. But this ideology infiltrates all of life. I, I tell in the book a story about how after the Russian Revolution, 
the Soviet Chess Society in 1924, I think it was, they could see that the government was trying to politicize chess. And they're like, wait, 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 you know, let's just have chess for chess's sake. A commissar, a political officer, wrote and said, no, comrades, you know, in the time of the revolution, everything must be dedicated to the revolution. So um, we, we can't have chess for chess's sake. It has to be chess for the sake of the revolution. Well, I think we're seeing that happen more and more in our society when it comes to so-called social justice. But it is not coming at us in the way uh, hard totalitarianism did, like George Orwell's 1984, when the state was coming at people, inflicting pain and fear and terror on them in order to get them to conform. That's not happening here. What's happening is more like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, where the people who wish to control us are appealing to our our, our desire for status and our comforts by threatening to manipulate them or take them away from us to get us to conform. And it's also happening in a way that that is so easy for us to accept. I'll give you a, a, a firm example. A lot of people have an Alexa in their house, you know, the smart speaker. Um, I know a lot of Christians who do. Now, this thing is on all the time, and it is monitoring people's conversations. We know this. Um, if the government came to you and said, we'd like to put a speaker in your house, that'll make it easier for you to order things, um, but um, it will record some of what you say, and we'll send it back, but um, you know, we, we think it's worth it. Nobody would take that deal. But if, it, if it's sold to us by a private company and, and pitched to us only for our personal convenience— We'll not only accept it in our house, we'll pay for it. This is what I mean. You know, we, we become used more and more and more to being monitored and surveilled. And all that data is being taken from us and stored by big companies, not the government, at least not now, but by big companies. Well, none of us think about big companies as being part of a totalitarian order, yet it's happening. Uh, and it's happening in a very therapeutic way. It's all about making your life easier or making uh, spaces safe uh, and healthy and that that sort of thing. The the Polos talks about what he calls the pink police state, the idea that we will exchange our political liberties like freedom of speech, freedom of freedom uh, of religion and so forth in exchange for a guarantee from the authorities that we will be comfortable and kept safe and healthy. That is the form of the totalitarianism that we are, uh, we're seeing now. And I got to tell you, in the book, I talk about uh, a priest in Slovakia who said, you know, in some ways it was easier under communism because the line between good and evil was very clear then, and the gospel shone a clear light through that darkness. Now when the light of the gospel strikes what we have now, it, it just hits fog. And uh, even the people over there that I talk to are struggling to understand exactly the contours and the nature of this ideology that is coming up on us. But uh, the one thing they're completely sure about, because they bones, is that this thing is totalitarian. Wow. <laughs> the, the idea, though, that, uh, that a certain, like, you talk about liberalism's admirable care for the weak and the marginalized— so I just did yesterday. I looked uh, looked that up, and uh, I found that uh, this guy named Bradford Richardson from the Washington Times he had a 2017 report from Philanthropy Panel Study, 
It said the staggering difference between the charitable giving practices of the religiously affiliated and with those of no religious affiliation. 62% of religious households give to charity. Only 46% of non-religious households do. So why this weird perception issue that liberal progressive woke groups are more interested in the marginalized than let's just say the church? Is this a, is, I mean, is this a perception? Is it because they control media? I mean, because I mean, yeah. the churches are still giving. The, the churches are still caring for those that are that are marginalized, and and look to be more so than even the uh, the, the woke are doing. But it, yeah, it, you know, this is this is a fundamental point about how this new soft totalitarianism spreads. It is the ideology of the professional classes. You know, in in the book, I talk about how James Davidson Hunter, the sociologist at UVA. In his, I guess it came out in 2010, his book, To Change the World, he talks about how Christians don't understand the importance of elite culture, that real cultural change in normal circumstances, it doesn't come from below, it comes from on top. And when people within any society's uh, cultural and governing elites began to take up an idea and spread it among themselves and their networks, that's when change happens. That's what happened in uh, Russia. The Marxists there had been trying for decades in the 19th century to get uh, get a foothold to change Russian society, and they didn't get anywhere. They were just confined to um, like universities and small reading groups. But then in 1891 and 92, a terrible famine, and uh, the government there, the czarist government, did a very bad job handling it. So bad that a lot of the middle class people there uh, began to think, you know what, maybe the system is wrong. Maybe the Marxists have a point. And they started listening to the Marxists and their children would go to universities and become radicalized. And they wanted so badly to stay in con- stay in touch with their children that a lot of people who knew better, older people, uh, gave themselves over to the to Marxism. And that's how the revolution eventually happened. But it happened, I, I, the point I want to stress is that it happened because an elite was first convinced of the, the rightness of radicalism and then used their networks to spread it through all of society. In the same way, it is very hard for ordinary Christians to in this country to understand how ideologically uniform the elites are. It sounds like conspiracy theory, you know, but the elites in the media, in academia, in law, in medicine, and so on, they are almost entirely uniform behind so-called social justice, and they are using their institutional power to make it a fact. Uh, and we uh, along with it because we don't seem to have much choice. And I, what I'm trying to do in Live Not By Lies is to say that we've got to stand up to it while we can. But uh, I, I can tell you, Matt, as a, I've been a professional journalist for over 30 years, and m- uh, most of that time spent in mainstream newsrooms. I can remember being at the Dallas Morning News around 2005 or so. I was on the editorial board and had a column there. Same-sex marriage was beginning to be a national issue. And uh, we knew that we were going to have to, at the editorial board, take a stand on it. And I knew also that I was one of the few conservatives on the editorial board, but I had a colleague there who is a younger man, a millennial and a Catholic. And I, uh, I, and I was a Catholic at the time. 
And I said, maybe I can get him on my side here so we can present a united front. I went to talk to him about same-sex marriage, and he looked at me and said, well, of course, uh, gay marriage is something that we have to have. It's a matter of justice. I said, but look, I, I had a Catholic catechism on my authoritative Catholic catechism on my desk. I brought it out and said, but our church teaches this. And he said, why should I believe that? You know, you're not saying you're a better Catholic than I am because you agree with that. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. The church teaches authoritatively, and you can imagine the kind of argument we had. But here's the key thing. I said at one point, I said, don't you see that our newspaper does not cover this issue of homosexuality and gay marriage fairly? We never uh, talk to Christians here except to put them down. And that's just not fair. My friend looked at me, and this is a church-going Christian, and said, but do you think if we were covering the civil rights movement that we ought to give the Ku Klux Klan equal time in the pages of our paper? Mm-hmm. That is one instance, but that is how that describes the media. Uh, they really do think that Christians who believe in traditional marriage and who believe in other things, that we are no better than the Klan. And if they never see anybody and talk to anybody who contradicts that point of view, uh, and and they now systematically discourage it, not just in the media, but in academia, in major corporations. If you were to be known as somebody who opposed critical race theory or opposed same-sex marriage, even privately, you would risk losing your job, and you certainly would not get any kind of promotion. So in this way, the this totalitarian view is taking over. Yeah, and the interesting thing is um, your book, I don't know if you've read the book, it reminded me of a, a book that I, I, I read a long time ago called They Thought They Were Free. It was Milton Mayer's book. Uh, it's a, it follows men of a fictional town called Cronenberg. It asked the, but it was real men that he had interviewed, uh, Nazi men who'd fell into the Nazi narrative. And, and he seemed to, to cover, they seemed to fall into a full trust of Hitler because of what was so wrong in the 1930s Germany. I mean, they had, you know, the, the, what happened after World War I, they were living under poverty, and these regular men all of a sudden within 10 years have accepted Hitler as, as, as their leader and were doing these horrible atrocities. And I say that to say, look, let, let's look at the last four years, and I'm not trying to make a political statement here, but I, I fear not only is one side woke, but the other side feels the wokeness, and they're looking for somebody to get them out of it. Yeah. So in doing so, they're looking for political figures that almost look like the other side in their zeal, but then it starts becoming a tribal thing. And you mentioned that. Uh, you had four or five different um, forms that of totalitarianism, and one of those was uh, not just a willingness to believe lies, but loyalty over expertise. Right. Uh, that right. was an important part of your book. And for the and for let's just call it our side. I hate to say things like that, but from the church side, we feel what you're talking about. But our only recourse, we think, is is to use the same mechanism power as the woke people are doing. We need our guy like they need their guy. Right. Uh, you, right. you think that? And I'm not making a statement here on Trump one way or the other. Not not on the not on my podcast. I'm just saying I fear that's where we're going. Like that's our only avenue. And this book, I think, is trying to give us no. Wait, put a break on that. There's ways out of this. It's just gonna be. It's not gonna be a quick fix. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah, totally fair to say. You know what you're talking about is uh, the chapter in my book where I go through. Uh, what Hannah Arendt, uh, her her uh, her signs that a society is ripe for totalitarianism. 
she was one of the great political theorists of the 20th century. She was a Jewish refugee from Nazi Germany. And uh, in the early 1950s, after the Second World War was done, she sat down to try to figure out why it was that the German people gave themselves over to Nazi totalitarianism and why it was that the Russian people did. And she tried to understand this from the point of view of political theory and sociology. And she identified certain aspects of life in both of those countries that made them susceptible. And I go through some of those in my book. The, the most important one is mass loneliness and atomization. People who were lonely and disconnected from the church from other people, from civic uh, organizations, and even from their own history, they are desperate for somebody to give them a sense of connection and a sense of meaning and purpose. This is the way the populations in both Russia after the war and Germany were, and the Bolsheviks in Russia and the Nazis in Germany stepped in and provided that the, the things that they longed for in their hearts. It wasn't that they were wrong for longing for these things, but this this false, uh, fake religion of Bolshevism and Nazism stepped in to to try to act where the church should have been. Uh, another thing, as you point out, is the willingness to believe lies or things that you know aren't true or have reason to believe they're not true, but they feel good. You know, this is what happened in both Nazi Germany and Russia. People just quit believing in truth, and they whatever felt like right in their bones were something they were willing to believe in. We are there, man. We are absolutely mm. there on both the left and the right. I'm a conservative, but we've got that same problem too. And um, you know, I, you mentioned the loyalty over uh, expertise, that tribalism. Donald Trump said himself that. Um, that he values loyalty more than expertise. As a quote I pulled in, and put in the book, but the left does the same thing. They believe they would rather hire somebody or go with somebody who carries the right demographic characteristics. They're a person of color or, or gay and so on and so forth. They would rather give a job to people like that or privilege people like that over people who have the wrong characteristics, according to social justice, who are white, male, heterosexual, Christian, whatever. Um, so it's the same sort of thing. And uh, what I try to say in the book is we Christians cannot be like them. They are the ones with the power. The left that's doing this are the ones with the power. But if we think, we Christians think that the solution here is political, we're going to go to a very dark place. Uh, in, in the book, I talk about this great movie that came out earlier this year called A Hidden Life. Did you happen to see that, Matt, A Hidden Life? I didn't. I, I remember it, you wrote up on it. Yeah, it's. I think it's on Amazon right now. Or uh, anyway, it's based on the true story of a man, a, a farmer, a Christian farmer named Franz Jägerstädter, who lived in the Austrian Alps in the 1930s, and he was a very faithful Catholic. When Nazism came to his village, his little Catholic village, most of the people in town fell for it because there were you know, Nazism spoke to a sense of grievance that they felt after the end of the First World War. But Jägerstädter, Franz and his family, because they practiced their faith so diligently, they could recognize the evil, the anti-Christian evil that was coming in with the Nazi party, and they resisted. Franz ultimately was thrown into prison because he wouldn't sign a loyalty oath to Hitler because he felt that Hitler was an, an antichrist, and they killed him. And he is now on the road to sainthood in the Catholic Church. I think that's so important because we Christians today have to 
be so diligent and disciplined in the way we live our lives, not just so we can resist um, the the anti-Christian aspects of wokeness, of left-wing power, but also so we don't fall into the same thing from the right. Uh, I, I think that politics have to form part of our solution or part of our resistance, but this is mostly, above all, spiritual warfare. Yeah, it's in you, the last part of your book, okay, and we'll go into the practical where we need to go next. But I mean, the, your book has this sense of saying, reminding us as Christians to expect suffering, and that suffering's a big part of this. And in, in a culture that's you know looking for therapeutic all the time, or looking for safe, or looking for you know the, the going the, the the way of of least problems. Um, I don't know if if anything 2020 has told me is that we're not ready for suffering as an American as American Christians. Um, we got a little taste of whatever this was in 2020. And listen, I go all around the state uh, for my job. I get to talk to a lot of pastors and there has been a lot of suffering this year. Uh, and but there was a lot of questions and a lot of uh, a lot of leaders asking me questions of oh, why this, why that, and it just left me thinking, boy, we're we are not ready for what's to come. Um, it, it, talk a minute about suffering uh, and maybe a Christian view of suffering and how maybe that's just something we need to be ready for. Oh man, that, that is the core of the argument right there. The most important chapter in the book is the chapter on suffering. I went to Russia. I went to the former uh, communist countries of Eastern Europe, talking to believers, uh, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox believers who had been through hell and under communism. And every single one of them, the core of their message to the American church is prepare to suffer. I remember about a year ago, I was standing in Moscow on a street in central Moscow. It had just started to snow. I was talking to this little old man uh, named Yuri Sipko. He was a um, a Baptist pastor, a Russian Baptist pastor, a white-haired man. Uh, he had been raised in Siberia as a child. The, his father and all the men of their Russian Baptist community had been thrown by Stalin into the gulag. So this is a guy who spent his whole life fighting for religious liberty and fighting for the gospel. And he looked at me in the eyes and said, you go home and you tell people that if you're not prepared to suffer, to even to give your life for Christ, you're not going to make it through what's coming. And uh, that he wasn't the only one who said it. it was so dramatic to hear it from him standing there within a, a stone's throw from Red Square. But uh, this is what they all said. And, and the, the point of the gospel, or rather we should say that our, our Lord won salvation for us by being willing to accept being whipped and, and nailed to a cross. He triumphed over death, but we cannot expect as Christians that our lives will be comfortable. If we do, then we're going to be the first ones to fall. Uh, I, I'm so inspired. You talk about COVID, what it has done for us or done to us. Um, you're absolutely right that it has been a kind of apocalypse for us in the sense of an unveiling to show what we're made of. I can remember back in the late spring when you know we couldn't have church at our, our little church um, for a while, and I was feeling really sorry for myself, but I fell back on the accounts I had not only heard from the mouths of people who had suffered, including uh, this one man in, in Russia whose face is still partially paralyzed from the beatings he received in prison. And uh, I thought about what they went through 
and how they the way they got through it was they all had a belief that what they were enduring in prison or wherever the persecution wherever was part of sharing in Jesus's suffering mm. and that if they this one man I talk about in the book Sylvester Kirchmeri he was a young physician in uh, Czechoslovakia and he talks about when he was pulled off the street by the secret police and thrown into the car to be taken to prison he laughed out loud and it made them really mad, but he laughed because he realized that now I get to have the honor of suffering for my Lord. And he said when he, he wrote in his memoir that when he got into prison, he realized that he could never feel sorry for himself. If he started to feel sorry for himself, then he was going to collapse. He rather saw for himself from the very beginning as, what the way he put it, God's probe. He's there to serve and to learn about himself and to deepen his own repentance and to serve God whichever way he can. And that's what got him through 10 years in prison. There's another story in the book, and this is the one that just knocks me out when I think about it. This guy, Alexander Ogorodnikov, was from a prominent communist family. He came to Christ in the early 70s in Moscow and became a real rebel because of that. They eventually threw him in prison, I think, in 1978, and they he didn't give him a death sentence, but they put him on death row because they wanted to make an example of him because of his status as a communist. And uh, he would just witness to people. these the, the hardest men in Russia were there on death row, and he would witness to them. And one night, they, they finally moved him to solitary confinement, and he was really suffering. He had been, was being beaten by his interrogators, and he started to lose faith. It's like, Lord, why am I here? Are you even there? Why did you put me here? And the Lord sent to him an angel that woke him up in the middle of the night and gave him a vision. And in the vision, he saw two prison guards walking a man who had his hands handcuffed, walking him to execution. And this happened night after night, and Alexander finally realized that he was being shown men to whom he had witnessed, and they were being led to their execution, but they were going to be with Christ in paradise because Alexander had been there in prison to share the gospel with him. This man, Alexander, is telling me this story, Matt, in a hotel in Moscow, hotel lobby in Moscow, and tears come down his face, his paralyzed face. And I thought, God. This is, this is what it's all about. This is what it means to walk with the Lord. So I would simply say that our, we have to learn to accept suffering. We have to fight against it uh, when we can. I'm not saying that we all have to make martyrs of ourselves, but we have to understand that to suffer for Christ is glory. And that we have to, if we're not willing to to do that, to accept the loss of job, the loss of status, the hatred of the contempt of the world, even maybe the loss of our freedom, and God forbid it could happen, the loss of our lives for the sake of the gospel. If we're not preparing ourselves to do that, then we are going to fall and we are going to apostatize. So the book, I mean, your the the your your new book. Um, should, in my opinion, should almost be read first. Like you should read this book and then go to the Benedict option uh, because the Benedict option is almost like a roadmap. It's a helpful roadmap for what is next. You know? But in this in but not of strategy that you're talking about, that we're all trying to talk about where are we uh, in setting up and preparing ourselves for what's to come. I mean, I, I think of it like a spectrum. You, I mean, you're not saying like a lot of your detractors say, you're not saying you're part of the Friends movement and you want to be a Quaker or you no. want to be a monk of the Catholic <laughs> tradition. You know, those are polar opposites, you know, in terms of the spectrum of what we're supposed to be right. as regular lay Christians in this in but not of 
living the world as we have to live in. So what are you advocating as preparation for Christian leaders? Well, let me tell a couple of uh, stories. Uh, I dedicate Live Not By Lies to a Catholic priest who died in 1990, a man named Father Tomislav Kolakovich. I didn't even know who this guy was until I went to Bratislava, now the capital of Slovakia, uh, and started looking into the underground church movement there. Father Kolakovich was Croatian, and in 1943, he was doing anti-Nazi work in Zagreb, uh, Croatia, as a Catholic priest. He got a tip that the Gestapo was coming for him, so he escaped overnight, went to uh, which was his mother's home country, and adopted her last name, Kolakovich, to kind of hide out. He taught in the Catholic University there, and what he said to his students when, as soon as he got there was, the good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is the communists are going to be ruling this country when it's over. And we've got to get ready because the first thing they're going to do is come after Christians. And he knew this uh, not because he was any kind of prophet, but because he had studied in his seminary the Soviet mindset, and the communist mindset, because he wanted to do missionary work in the Soviet Union. So what Father Kolakovich did was organize small groups of students, I guess, mostly students, who would come together to pray, but not just to pray, but to talk about what was going on in their society and how they could prepare for it, and things as practical as how to survive an interrogation. Now, this was in 1943-44. The Catholic bishops came down on him and said, you're alarming people, you're scaring people, that'll never happen. And But he knew it could happen, and he also knew that given the trust that the Catholics of Slovakia, and it's a Catholic country, not many Protestants there, um, the trust they had in their pastors and the way things were set up, that if the communists came after the pastors and the churches themselves, they could destroy the church. And so what he was trying to do was equip the laity to keep the church going under time of persecution. Father Kolakovich called his little group the family, and chapters of the family spread in every sizable village throughout that whole country. By the time the Iron Curtain fell in 1948, they kicked Kolakovich out. Um, the first thing the communists did, of course, they came after the churches and the priests. But the, the network that Father Kolakovich set up of lay people and a few priests who, who worked with him they became the backbone for the underground church and the only meaningful resistance to communism for the next 40 years. I dedicate my book to him because we Christians have to start doing the same thing here. We have to start working within our churches and our, and our, our, our networks and across denominational lines to get ready. And what does that mean? That means, not first and foremost, to prepare ourselves spiritually by disciplined living. Uh, so Dr. Kirchmeri, I mentioned him earlier, he talked about how the one thing that got him through prison, 10 years of prison, was having memorized so much of the Bible, because they wouldn't let him have a Bible in prison. The memorization of Scripture was a thing that was, Scripture was in his heart, and he could meditate on it and use it to witness. So we got to prepare ourselves for that. we got to talk about what it means to suffer, and where the lines are, the things that, that we know that we must not do as Christians. And, and we also have to set up networks of mutual support. You know, when members of the body of Christ are in a corporation or university, and we're asked to do things that violate our conscience, if we know that the church has our back, 
that if we have to resign our jobs, that our kids are not going to starve because other members of the body of Christ will be there to help us financially and otherwise. It'll be easier to do the right thing. These are all things that the underground church did, and uh, and they didn't wait until until oppression came. They started before the oppression came, so they would know how to do it. Now, in a in a less um, dramatic sense, in the Benedict option, I talk about different practices that people can do, Christians, whatever your tradition, to build a thicker community and a more resilient community. I, I highlight, one of the communities I highlight is this Catholic community in Italy called the Tipiloski. Um, and they're not angry, resentful Christians at all. They're joyful. But they also knew that, you know, as, even though they're all Catholics, they knew that in their normal Catholic church, they were just getting this watered-down, feel-good approach to Christianity, and they needed more than that, not to resist evil necessarily, but just to live a full life as as sons and daughters of Christ. And so they can, they come together, they all live in different houses throughout their, their small city on the coast, but they have a kind of a clubhouse, and they come together for Bible study and for prayer, but also for sports. They're growing a garden there. They're help, they have a classical school, believe it or not, in Italy. They started a classical school and are just trying to establish a, a, an open community, a community that's open to anybody. They invite anybody to be part of it, but they say, if you're going to be part of it, you have to live an authentic Christian way. That's They do a really good job of it, but that's the kind of thing that I would love to see happen here in America, and there's no reason it can't happen here. It just requires dedication, and it requires vision. Yeah, and I think your your books and your work are an incredible start to that. So thank you so much for coming on. Let let me tell people that are listening, uh, you can get to your work and some of the things you do. You're pretty active on Twitter at uh, at Rod Dreher. It's R O D D R E H E R. You actually started writing for Substack uh, uh, not too while long ago. I've been reading you there, uh, so you can you can find him there. You can also find him at the American Conservative. He's got a great article called "At Home in Helms Deep." Uh, that me and my son read to each other a couple of days ago. Uh, it's fantastic. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for what you're doing. And I feel like I've, I've gained a new brother and friend in Christ. Oh, God bless you, Matt. Thank you so much. And uh, it's true. We need to build these, these friendships, these deep friendships. One thing I, I learned from doing this work is that uh, when in prison, the divisions between Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox melted away. And uh, because not because the people there, the Protestants, Catholics and Orthodox ceased to believe in denominational distinctives, they didn't. They still remained who they were theologically. But they realized that all of them were thrown into prison by the communists, not because they were Lutheran or Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, but because they confessed Christ. And so they were able to find that brotherhood and build that brotherhood of mutual support and prayer and otherwise under conditions of persecution. And I, I think that, um, you know, I'm not an ecumenist in the bad sense. I believe that uh, it's important to stay faithful to your denominational distinctives and to your, your particular confession. I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian now, and I'm going to stay an Eastern Orthodox Christian, but I'm also going to be and endeavor to be a real brother in Christ to anybody who professes Jesus, and especially if they're being persecuted. So, um, and I, I hope that in my work that I can encourage other Christians to be open in just the same way, and because we have to stand together 
there are fewer and fewer of us in this country. We are a post-Christian country. There's, I, I hate it, but there's no doubt about it. And we have got to find each other and learn to be friends together, and not only friends, but brothers and sisters in Christ, while we have the freedom to do so. Amen. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Matt.